We're in the middle of a series called God-Sized Conversations. And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Proverbs, this is the book of wisdom in the Old Testament. It was written by King Solomon to his blockheaded son named Rehoboam. And later on, we would see that it really didn't sink in. The wisdom didn't really sink in there for his son. But it's 31 chapters, one for each day of the month. And so when our firstborn child could begin to speak, our son Mark, we began, he and I began memorizing one verse per chapter of the book of Proverbs. He's three or four years old. It's kind of amazing to look back on that. And we would pick, I would pick, select one verse, one key verse from each chapter. And so when I've recorded my first piano CD, we actually have him as our last track, and it's, we know it as uh, Marky's Proverbs. And they became known as much for Marky's voice inflections because he was unable to say his R's and his L's. And so when we got to a verse like Proverbs 6.6, 6, which is, go to the ant thou sluggard, consider its ways and be wise, he would pronounce it, go to the ant thou swiggered, consider its ways and be wise. And when we got to a verse like Proverbs 5.3, the lips of the adulteress drip honey and her speech is as smooth as oil. As you can see up there, it was the whips of the adulteress dwip honey, and then he said, and her speech is smoothing in oil. And so I would select the verse that I felt was the most important verse of the chapter, while also being a verse that a three or four-year-old could memorize. And so we come to chapter 16, Proverbs 16, and the verse I selected for my son and I to memorize was found in Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. And that brings us to our God-sized question that was submitted in a survey that we took where we asked for people to submit questions. And that brings us to our conversation today. How can I know the will of God in my life? How can I know his will? How can I know what his plans are? And this is a relevant question for all of us, no matter what season of life we're at, because we're always at that fork in the road. We're always making decisions. We're always responding. And many times it seems difficult to know, perplexing to know what God's will is. When you're younger, who should I date? Should I date this person? Should I not date this person? Should I go to this school or that school? Is this the person that God wants me to marry or not? And if you're a business leader, maybe you have different opportunities that come up. And is this an opportunity that God has laid out for you? Is this the center of God's will? And so this is a, this is a question that is perplexing and it is relevant. Should I continue to develop a friendship that you have, maybe a friendship that seems toxic, or should I continue to love that person but cut it off? It's difficult to know many times. Two of the most famous Bible verses, according to polls and surveys, especially among young people, are two verses that are related to knowing God's will. 
or being empowered to know God's will and to carry it out. Jeremiah 29, 11, of course, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this is a question that burns on people's hearts. What is God's plan for me? And how will these plans come to fruition? If this isn't a question, if it's not a concern for you, then that's not a good thing either because perhaps you don't really care all that much whether it's God's will or not that you make a certain decision. And you could be someone who has been a Christian all of your life, but maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe you've forgotten about God's will. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Now, when we first read verses like this one, and like Jeremiah 29, 11, and Philippians 4, 13, many times the temptation is to, to look at this and to say that if I have a big decision, if I have something going on in my life, if I commit it to the Lord, if I commit to being godly about this decision, or I commit to going to, in prayer, then my plans will succeed. Or in Jeremiah 29, 11, it's the same kind of idea that, that I'm going to score the touchdown, you know, things like that. My plans will succeed. And it's so much deeper and richer than that. Because when we look at this verse, First thing that we need to look at is the word commit. What does this word commit mean? It's a very deep word with deep meaning. It means to give yourself fully over to something. It literally means in the Hebrew to roll into something. Interesting, isn't, isn't it? To, to Give something over to, to give something over to another so that it can be preserved, to commit something, to roll onto something. This isn't a short-term one and done deal. When we say we are in a committed relationship, what does that mean? It means a long-term, for better, for worse type of relationship. And we have the same idea here. And it's not just committing the big things, the big decisions. It's committing, if you look at this verse, everything to the Lord. Whatever you do. The big things, the big decisions, the little ones, the reactions that we have all throughout the day. The way that we respond to different situations. Not only the big decisions, but everything that we are. Here is another key to understanding this verse, because we have to ask ourselves, what are we 100% committed to? Well, you can see it there. It says, to the Lord. Well, that can become very vague, because what exactly does that title of God mean? And we've talked about this before, but when we, when we see this title, Lord, in the Old Testament, when it's in all caps in the English Bible, and I've said this before, actually, several times, any time that you see this title for God in the Old Testament, Lord, we're dealing with the covenantal Lord, the God who keeps his promises. Literally means Yahweh. 
Anytime we see that title, that's what that means. And it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is called by God to do something, to commit everything to him, to commit his life to the Lord. And he's to go back to the Hebrews at that time, and he's to free them out of bondage. And he is called by God to do this, and he begins questioning God and asks him, what is your name? When they ask me the name of this God, what should I tell them? And God says to him this, he says, tell them I am. That is my name. I am. And that's what L-O-R-D in the Old Testament means. Anytime we see that title for God, it literally means I am. It means Yahweh. And in John chapter 8 in the New Testament, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. They're arguing with him. They're asking him all kinds of questions, trying to trap him. They're asking questions about, you know, where did you come from and who do you think you are and by what power are you doing these things and saying these things that are really bothering us. And Jesus made this statement that, he, that Abraham, who was their father in the faith, who had lived 2,000 years before, that Abraham had lived to see this day, that he wanted to see this day when Jesus would come. And so the Pharisees said to him, they said, well, you're only 30 years old. How could you possibly know Abraham? He's 2,000 years ago. And Jesus makes this statement, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Lord of the Old Testament, Yahweh. They picked up stones to stone him because they knew what he was doing. He's claiming not to be a good prophet, not to be a good teacher, but to be God himself. So anytime in the Old Testament that we see Lord, we should think intimately about Jesus. We can literally replace Lord with Jesus. It's that intimate. He claims to be this Yahweh of the Old Testament. So, commit to Jesus. Commit whatever you do to being all in with Jesus. That everything that we do is all about Jesus. Commit to being a person who rolls into Jesus. Commit to be a person who stores things away and trusts Jesus to preserve things in our life. Commit to the Lord, commit to Jesus, commit to Yahweh, commit to the great I am, whatever you do, big things, small things, thoughts, words, deeds, actions, responses, reactions, whatever it is that we do, and then in the future, after you have done that, after that becomes who you are, after it becomes who you are to be a nothing but Jesus person, whatever you do, and then in the future, your plans will begin to succeed when they are through that lens. That's what that means. It has nothing to do with the football player scoring a touchdown. Zero. Well, it may have something to do with that, but not a lot to do with that, okay? So there's, there's just a lot more happening there. So when you are saturated, truly saturated by Jesus, by nothing but Jesus, your plans will begin, your plans, the future plans will begin to make sense and succeed. Why is that? Let's look at it practically. 
So just think about it for a minute. When you first become a Christian, when you first become a Christian, the cross of Jesus Christ is everything to you, isn't it? That's your first love. The cross floods your life. And as we grow in our faith and as we get older and older, many times we stop thinking about the cross. We start filling in that gap in our life with anything but Jesus. But a person who is committed to the Lord, committed to Jesus, committed to being an all-in-for-Jesus type person with everything that they do, the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in their life. Why? Because the more you know Jesus, the more you know how much you need Jesus. The more that you know Jesus, the, the more you're focused on the cross, not just at your justification, but through your sanctification where we're improving more and more and killing sin more and more every day, becoming more and more like Jesus, this begins to humble us. It begins to make us less judgmental of others. It begins to make us less narcissistic. It begins to make us less focused on ourselves and our own opinion. And so what happens is that a humble person begins to seek out the counsel of other wise people in their life. You don't do that if you're not a nothing but Jesus person. You just don't. You don't do that if your life isn't flooded by the gospel because you have all the answers. You have all the answers at that point, and so you just go and do your own thing. But a person who is truly committed to Jesus, to being all in with Jesus, will seek the counsel of others. Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. There it is. Are you a person who seeks out the wisdom when you're thinking about your plans, God's will for your life? We see right here that many times that comes through the multitude of counsel around you. And you need to be in the church and in community in order for that to happen. You need to have people around you who can actually do that. In Proverbs 19, 20, listen to advice. Listen to advice. Accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Just that first word. What is that first word? What is that first word? Listen. That's the first word. How do you listen when your mouth is moving? You don't. I don't know where people get all the words. I really don't. I don't know where they get all the words. Many times people will come for help and they just want to talk the whole time. Like, listen to instruction. Many times when we do counseling, we'll say, you need to listen to what we are telling you and go do it. Listen to the counsel. You can't possibly listen if your mouth is moving. Another proverb that we learned was Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is prudent. Now, when I was teaching these to Marky, we would change words around, you know, it was like his, our version of it. And one of the things that we said there was that he who holds his tongue is wise. So a person who literally takes their hand and holds their tongue tightly what happens? You can't speak at that point. Many times, that's what all of us need, is we just need to zip it and listen to those around us. So there's this idea in these Proverbs that committing to the Lord, whatever you do, isn't quickly asking for God's guidance 
or just kind of wondering about it when something comes up. It's a long-term relationship, a commitment, and when you have that, you will slowly begin to make good plans. You will. You will make plans. You will say words. You will think thoughts that are through the lens and through the grid of nothing but Jesus, and your plans will succeed. Not through the lens of me, not through the lens of nothing but moralism or nothing but me or nothing but my great ideas or nothing but all of my words or nothing but what this pastor is saying on some podcast or what this person is saying to me, but nothing but Jesus. What does that look like in our lives? Well, it looks a lot like, and this is going to seem so simple, but it really is. What does it look like in our lives to seek after God's will when we are a nothing but Jesus person? It looks a lot like doing the next thing. Just doing the next thing. Do you want to know what God's will is for you right now? Doing the next thing. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. It's a little bit more than that. Do the next thing. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary. They were missionaries in Ecuador. And Jim Elliott and four others with him were attempting to make missionary contact with the native Indians there, and they thought they had success. They thought they had made some inroads with one of them, but this individual was, was kind of tricking them. And so when they came to the village thinking they would be welcomed, they were welcomed by ten warriors who speared them all to death. Can you imagine? Speared to death by the very people that he was pursuing and loving and anxious to share the gospel. And somehow, some way, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, actually stayed after her husband was speared to death. And just imagine that. Just imagine how, and I've, I've often wondered, how did she kind of know that was God's will for her? I mean, that must have been just an enormous decision that was just so heavy on her heart. She's a widow at that point. She's a single mom at that point. And you would think that that would just be a very difficult, heart-wrenching decision that she wouldn't be in any condition to make that decision to stay and to carry on the work. Do you think she really knew at that point God's long-term plan? She says she didn't. She wrote that when she went back to her jungle station after her husband's death, she had all kinds of uncertainties. What would she do? Where would she go? And she believed that she was called according to Matthew 6, where Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Today is enough trouble of its own. She believed that she was called to the next Thing. And the next thing was that Sunday was coming. And so she made plans to meet with a couple of the guys who were part of the, uh, of the work at that point. They were brand new Christians. They were natives. And she met with them on a Saturday and began teaching them how to preach. Because that was the next thing. And then she did the next thing. And then she did the next thing. And the next thing. And the next thing. It seems so simple, but it's not so simple. She had already committed, before all this took place, whatever she did to be all about Jesus, and now her plans 
would succeed. Now, I want to add one word to Elizabeth Elliot's approach, and I'm sure she wouldn't mind, and I'm sure this is implicitly what she meant anyway. And it's this. Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Whatever that may be, do the next right thing. That's what you're called to. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? I mean, you could be a guy right now, and, and you might be dating someone, and um, you're not sure, is she the right one for me? Should I marry her? Should I not, not marry her? Your next right thing may just be to, I don't know, maybe brush your teeth before your next date. I mean, that might be the next right thing for you. The next right thing for you may be to just kind of, you know, cool it a little bit, and don't come on so strong, and stop worrying about, you know, whether or not your marriage material or not. Do the next right thing, whatever that right thing is. And when you are immersed in nothing but Jesus, this next right thing begins to come naturally. What does that mean? All right, so what is the word right? What does that word even mean? It's righteous. The next right thing. The next righteous thing. Not the next self-righteous thing. The next righteous thing. But the trouble is we have no righteousness, we have no rightness in and of ourselves. So we need righteousness, rightness of someone else. All roads here at Reed's Church lead back to nothing but Jesus. There should never be a sermon, a plan, a song, a ministry, a conversation that shouldn't lead right back to Jesus. It's the same thing here. We can't do the next right thing in and of ourselves because we need another's righteousness, another's rightness given to us so that we can do the next right thing. And thankfully, because of Jesus and because of this great exchange that Martin Luther calls it, that we get his rightness, we get his righteousness, he gets our foolishness on his shoulders, he gets our wrongness, our blockheadedness, our foolishness, he takes all of that into himself, he dies for all of that, and he gives to us, imputes to us, his righteousness, his rightness. In John 15, Jesus said that if you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear good fruit. You will know the next right thing. Listen, Jesus promises us grace for the next right thing. He doesn't promise us grace, though, for our worries. He doesn't promise grace for worrying about tomorrow. He promises us grace right in the moment. I quoted this verse earlier, Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now why many times, why many times do we not do the next right thing? Immersed in Jesus, you know, I think of that song, Because He Lives. Because He Lives, all fear is gone because of what He did for us. And the reason why we don't always do the next right thing is because of fear, isn't it? It's because of fear. And when we are gripped by fear, 
God doesn't use us the way that we could be used. Because even though God is in control, even though God is sovereign, even though God's will is going to be done regardless of us, somehow, some way, he still uses us as a way of bringing about his will. Isn't that glorious that that even happens? The world is bound up in fear. But why don't we trust? Many times, perhaps every time, why do we not do the next right thing? Many times it's fear. I know that it is for me. Lack of trust in the Lord. There's a great psalm, and again, it has this incredible theme of giving everything over to the Lord, committing to the Lord again and again and again. And that fertile ground becomes the ground of making decisions from a nothing but Jesus standpoint. And it's in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 says, you are a hiding place for me. You are a hiding place for me. Paul would later say, you're hidden in Christ. Hidden in Christ. He says, God has put you there. God has placed you hidden in Christ. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And there's this old worship song. And it's based on this psalm. It's all about trusting in the Lord. It's all about committing to the Lord. It's all of these themes. And the lyrics are this. You are my hiding place. You always fill my mouth with songs of deliverance. When I am afraid, when the fear comes, I will trust in you. Do you need that this morning? Some of you are facing all kinds of different decisions. Maybe a decision to sin or not sin. Some of you may be on the cusp of an affair or on the cusp of doing something that you know you shouldn't do. Do you trust? I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Let the weak, let the weak say I am strong in the strength of the Lord. I will trust in you. I want to share um, an arrangement of this um, song and I, I pray that it will bless you. Again, you are my hiding place. Are you hidden with Christ, are you hidden in Christ?
Don't let fear keep you from doing the next right thing. If you do, you may miss the blessing of God, of God using you to bring about his good, perfect, and pleasing will. As a grandmother, Elizabeth Elliot, later would write this, and she would experience this. She babysat for her daughter, and you know, she was just worn out from uh, you know, caring for the child, and she said that there was just a million questions the child would ask over and over and over again. Can I have a drink? Can I have this? What do you think of that? What do you think of this? And she wrote this. As a grandmother, I was babysitting, and I thought, how does my daughter do it? So tell me, Val, how do you do it? She called her daughter and asked. Her daughter laughed and she said, well, mama, I'll tell you how. I do what you told me to do years ago. What's that? Do the next thing. Even in the mundane stuff. Don't sit down and think of all the things you have to do. That will kill you. It's overwhelming. It's daunting if you think of all the things that are involved in a task. Just pick up the next thing, the next right thing. So that's a small example in the, in the mundane, in the daily that many of us face. But here's another example of how God could use you, could use me in a very big way if we're willing to do the next right thing that a nothing but Jesus person is called to do. When Jesus died on the cross, okay, his disciples scattered, right? I mean, they were scared, dead Messiah, not a Messiah at all. They didn't follow him anymore because they went back to being fishermen and they were just confused and perplexed. And so when a man is crucified, when a person is crucified, the body many times is so bruised, so broken, so messed up that the body many times is just discarded, just thrown in the trash. Horrible to think about. Or other horrible things that happen to a body. But Jesus' body, think about it, needed to be buried needed to go into a grave so that on Easter Sunday, he would come out of the grave. So this needed to happen, but how would it happen? Who was going to do this? Who would have the wherewithal to make this happen? There was a man, his name was Joseph of Arimathea. He was a Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees in the Bible, they were the good guys back then. Everybody looked up to them then. Now they're the bad guys because they were the ones who, you know, were instigators when it came to Jesus. But this one was a good one. This was one who, who was interested in what Jesus had to say, and he didn't consent to the crucifixion. He had become a follower of Jesus. But this was his moment. Would he be gripped by fear? Or would he follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit and do the next right thing? Because the next right thing for him was that he was called to go get Jesus' body and give him a tomb that he had to lay his body in. The next right thing has to happen to get to Sunday morning. You think about it. These are the way God uses us and even the small things to get to the point of Jesus coming out of that tomb. In order for that to happen, he has to be in the tomb in the first place. The next right thing has to happen. And it's a series of next right things. In Luke 23, we find this account. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. There it is. He was a good and righteous man. 
who had not consented to their decision and action, and look at this phrase, he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking to be used in some way in the kingdom of God. He already had that fertile ground inside him. He already had that, that way of Jesus. He had already committed whatever he did to the Lord. He already had done that. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He's still looking for the kingdom of God even after Jesus has died. That's interesting. This man went to Pilate. There's the first right thing that he did. The first right thing. He was bold enough to go to Pilate. He was obedient enough to go to Pilate. That was God's will for him in that moment, the next right thing. And he asked for the body of Jesus. So he didn't go and get cold feet and then just talk about something else that, you know, kind of like what we do many times when we feel called to do something and we feel that burning in our hearts. No, he went and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he goes and he takes it down. Someone has to take that bruised, broken, bloodied, spear in his side, that body down from the cross. Someone has to take that body and put it in a tomb. He does the next right hard thing. He takes it down. The next right thing, he wraps it in a linen shroud. And then the next right thing, he lays him in a tomb cut in stone. And then the next right thing that he may have not even known that he was doing, but he's carrying out God's will where no one had ever yet been laid. That's a prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus would be in a tomb that hadn't been used before. Here he does the next right thing over and over and over again. How do you know what the next right thing is? Only by being committed to being a nothing but Jesus person. That's it. Commit to the Lord. Commit to the Lord, to Yahweh, whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, the world celebrates St. Patrick's Day today, and um, it's essentially become a secular holiday, but it's, it's in honor of a saint, St. Patrick, obviously. And he was another missionary in the fifth century, and he was like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. He continued to love his enemies. He continued to reach out to them with the gospel. Because you see, when he was 16 years old, he was taken as a slave to Ireland, treated horribly. But then when he's an adult and he's in Britain, he feels this call to become a missionary. And where does he go? Back to Ireland. And he became one of the great voices for the gospel in Ireland because he did the next right thing. The course of history was changed. He kept doing the next right thing again and again and again. And he wrote these words. And this is the key. This is the key. This is the fertile ground for doing the next right thing. And I'll invite the worship team to make their way forward this time. Christ with me, he wrote. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks about me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. 
Wouldn't that be amazing? Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Commit to the Lord. Commit to being all in with Jesus in whatever you do, and you will know the good and perfect and pleasing next right thing. He's promised to give us that. He's promised to give us the next right thing in every moment. And we won't always do it, but he promises that to us. And it comes in the form of a promise later that Paul gives us where he says that there's no temptation that we can't overcome, that God gives grace in every single moment. The next right thing, the next pleasing right thing that God has called you to.